0: You know, very often, oh, I don't know if I got cut off there, you know, very often, uh, unbelievers and skeptics will, uh, claim that there's just no evidence to support Christian theism, um, in particular, Matt Dilhunty is, has become something of a, a phenom, very well known for his, uh, you know, uh, no, show me the evidence, there's no evidence kind of stuff, um, and the guest that I have today, that I'm going to be interviewing today, he works in cold case homicide, or yeah, cold case homicide cases, um, and often ones in which there is no body, um, no proof in that sense of the word that there's been a crime committed. And so you have something similar um, in those kinds of cases as you do with the case of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, And so, how might the skills, the practices, the techniques used in a cold case, uh, no body homicide case, how might those skills be leveraged in supporting the uh, the the truth claims at the center of the Christian faith? That's the question that we we discuss in today's episode of The Apologetics. Chris Date and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is Chris Date, and two things I want to say right off the bat. Number one, my color is all weird. I totally understand. Uh, my wife and I used my camera. It's not my camera; it's her camera. Yesterday at church, and we have our chur- we, we do our church at a grange building, and their building is old, and it has a lot of pine, and so my wife has to adjust the color balance and stuff on the camera, and I forgot to make sure that was reset by the time we did the stream today. So if I look a little blue and stuff like that. And that's why, don't worry, I haven't uh, become a smurf or anything. The other thing I just want to say is, I'm sorry, I'm starting about 11, 12 minutes late. We had My guest and I had technical difficulties, but praise be to God, we've worked through them and I'm really looking forward to, um, to introducing you to him. But before I do, just I want to remind you that um, it means a lot to me and it really helps the YouTube algorithms to have my videos show up and the recommended videos and things. If you would click that like button, if you enjoy the video subscribe to the channel, and click the notifications bell. Each one of those three distinct actions you can take, which are very easy to do, help my video when it comes to the YouTube algorithms and things like that. So I'd very much appreciate it. Um, And I could say more, oh, I will say one other thing. Um, I'm not yet certain what I'm going to be covering two weeks from now in the next episode of The Apologetics, but what I'm entertaining right now is the thought of having my wife join me, my wife of 21 years, to talk about um, how we maintain a healthy thriving marriage because we think that um, those are things that many of you might benefit from as well Um, if you think that that's something that you would be interested in hearing if you think you'd be interested in seeing and hearing from my wife um, then let me know in the comments or you know via email or whatever and uh, we'll make it happen so without further ado, let me tell you what's going to happen today. I have been a fan of the guest I'm about to bring on the screen here in a moment for, I, I'm, I think it's over a decade. I first encountered him when I was a regular listener to Greg Kokel's uh, Stand to Reason ministry, and I became a big fan of Please Convince Me, um, which he was working on at the time. I went and saw him at an Apologetics Canada conference. I'm <laughs> The other day I was talking to my wife about uh, my guest, and she described me as something of a fangirl for the guest that I'm going to be interviewing today. So I'm really excited to have him on. He is a cold case homicide detective in, I think it's uh, uh, Los Angeles. Um, he's he's the most interviewed detective on Dateline, um, but the reason he's here today is because he also became a Christian in part because of the skills that he has learned and honed and perfected over his career as a cold case homicide detective. And in a recent book he talks about some of the ways that those things can be used to, um, to analyze the case for Christianity, specifically the case for Jesus. So, um, I'm going to bring him on and we'll get started. Here we go. All right, Jim, it's so thankful, or I'm, I'm so thankful to have you on. It, it means the world to me. Uh, for the viewer's sake, this is Jay Warner Wallace. Um, he, he, I know him as Jim, uh, but he probably doesn't go by Jim Wallace because of the other Jim Wallace. <laughs> so, um, But anyway, Jim, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Were no gospel, the thing I'd be teaching about most, I think, would be marriage, because I think Mm -hmm. that traditional marriage has the power to do a lot in the world, even if there was no gospel to preach. I think, And I think we've moved away from, so yeah, I think I'm one of those people who spends a lot of time um, in in different conferences and in different settings talking about marriage really, uh, and from a Christian perspective, but I think it's such an important topic and for those of us who've been married for a while um, and love our marriages, I think it's great to help others love theirs, so yeah, I'm in.
0: Well, that's all I need, I'll go ahead and plan it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, Jim, as I do with uh, most of my interview guests, I'd love to spend a little bit of time getting to know you. Um, I know a lot about what we're going to discuss, but many of my viewers will not. Um, And I'd like to begin the the process of getting to know you with a little discussion around your faith background. So um, were you raised in a Christian home? Did did you accept Christ early in life? Or were you an unbeliever until uh, a, a later
1: point in your life? I, well, I just didn't have anybody in my family who was, was a Christian. So I was in Los Angeles County growing up, born and raised here, and and um, you know we, uh, years later, my wife and I we didn't become Christians until we were in our thirties, and I was about thirty-five. And I remember we said afterwards, how did we get this far without anyone ever inviting us to church? Like I'm sure we knew Christians growing up; they just didn't tell us they were Christians. Or you know, and and I, I, an old training officer of mine, wrote me like about about a week ago and he said yeah isn't it funny that you're a christian because i remember when you were my trainee and then years later i if i mentioned anything about jesus you just get really hostile about it and i i I knew i was that kind of guy i didn't know i was that kind of guy to him (laughs) i kind of wish i hadn't been but but I just was not raised in that environment where I knew anybody who was a Christian, and the few that I met, I just didn't think much of them. I, I know that sounds terrible, but a lot of it was I was there, because, man, I get it. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of it was because I just didn't feel like they um, represented their beliefs all that They couldn't defend their beliefs, for sure, and then a lot of people who would take to jail would tell us they were Christians, sometimes on the way to jail, or in the first interview once we were at the jail, during the booking. And I just, or the, on the phone, they're talking to their other loved ones, and I'm thinking, well, how did you, how, this guy's been a heroin addict for, you know, 15 years and, and done all kinds of terrible crimes, and yet he wants to, us to think he's, you know, a saved Christian. So I, all of that just added up to me not being interested in Christian. I just thought it was so patently false. Hmm. You know, I'm not like Lee Strobel, my friend who, your friend, you know, we all know who Lee is. And, and Lee was trying to convince Leslie that, that you know, that Christianity was I wasn't trying to convince him. We, no, this was like not even worth our time. Um, so we walked into that first church, not really knowing what to expect and at an evangelical church.
0: Yeah. Um, now, as I mentioned in introducing your, introducing you, you're a cold case homicide detective. Um, but maybe you could walk us through how you got into law enforcement, what about it attracted you to it and such that you would make it your career, especially in the case, especially with, with your specialty cold case homicide detectives, walk us through how that became such a,
1: a part of your life. Well, you know, it's a dumb accident. I mean, it can be a, an accident, but it wasn't like my strategy on this. I was an artist. You know, I had a bachelor's degree in design, I, was a, I had a master's degree in architecture. I was working in an architectural firm in Santa Monica. My dad was a cop, though, and I felt like his job um, would, would be a better way to raise a family than my job. Mm-hmm. In other words, his job had certain strict parameters and he had a certain amount of vacation time and he raised seven children uh, with this job. No, not, I mean, you know, kind of like dirt poor a lot of the time, but, but it seemed honorable to me and it seemed like the kind of job that, um, you know, as an, arch- as an architect, I never came home. It felt like I was, you know, if, you, if someone tells you, hey, if you spend another 20 hours on this design, which represents your design pr- perspective, it'll be better. Well, you're going to spend twenty more hours, and you're working on a salary. So suddenly, you're at the office, you know, sixty to eighty hours a week on a forty-hour salary. You know, I hate to say this, but if you're working sixty hours in law enforcement, you're getting paid, you know, twenty hours of overtime. Hmm. So, so it just—I felt like it was less. I was—it was more responsible for me because Susie and I had been together about nine years by the time I I left architecture and started in law enforcement. You start off in patrol, you know, I, I did years of patrol. I worked gangs for a couple of years. I worked undercover for four years. I did SWAT for three years. Then I got assigned a robbery homicide, and then eventually I picked up an unsolved case because I was injured. I got injured and I had some downtime and nobody was assigning me any fresh cases because I was injured. So I picked up a partner's uh, cold case, solved it, and then that started the, the whole cold case career. So it was really kind of in some way, you know, I would have said, as a non-believer, just dumb luck, you know, <laughs> But looking back at it, of course, I think that there's a reason why God allowed it to happen this way, because I developed a set of skills that then when I was examining Christianity, it just, now look, I'm not to say that everyone ne- uh, does it this way, I had an unorthodox way to back into this, but, but I had built up so many objections, and so many, uh, I was so hostile, that I I just needed to, to, to do, so, I needed a system in place that would help me deconstruct all the stupid I had built up between me and the gospel. Mm. So uh, that's really what this did for me, is it helped me to kind of un- unbuild the walls that I had built up over the years so that the gospel could be heard in my life. Because, you know, I've, you know how we talked about this before. I, I've never uh, claimed that somehow you could, I could think my way to this. Mm. Um, I just needed someone to help me unravel my stupid thoughts so I could hear the gospel clearly. Yeah,
0: well, walk us through then how, in the context of your career as a cold case homicide detective, how it is that the gospel did eventually um, break through. Because if I'm not mistaken, it's in that context as a detective that um, uh, that you came to faith. Can you tell us how that happened and how your skills in that career uniquely made that possible?
1: Yeah, I, I walked into a church with Susie because Susie was my wife was interested in and in, should we raise our kids with the we had kids now years later and so we were together about 18 years neither one of us had ever read a bible <laughs> and really you know this is our first time sitting foot in an evangelical church for anything other than like a wedding and but we thought she thought should should we raise our kids with some formal sense of um the, the transcendent you know no i wasn't raised that way if you want to uh, I mean, I, my dad would go as a non-believer. He would, if his wife was a, uh, a religious person, she would. He would go to church. He'd go to church with his family members. He later, years later, when I became a pastor, he would come to my church. Doesn't believe it's true, but he believes it's useful. Hmm. And that was my view. You know, if you love your wife and she wants to go and it's useful, why not go? <laughs> happy so wife, I, happy life, right? Yes. Yeah, so I went. You know, and I'm sitting there, and uh, a friend had invited us to this church for like three years, and I had brushed him off the whole time. And uh, but but when she said we should go, I said, well, I'm, you know, we could go to Bill. Bill said we could. I forget what I call. I don't call him by name. Bill in the book. I tried now. I shouldn't have said it here publicly. But anyway, so I, <laughs> I so I go to this church with him, and he's teasing me the whole time I'm there, you know. And 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 we walk in, and it's this huge church, like in a warehouse setting. And we walked in, and I remember my wife said, "This doesn't seem very holy." <laughs> you know, this doesn't seem like. But the guy was very ordinary on the stage, you know, dressed very ordinarily. And he made this pitch that Jesus was smart, the smartest man who had ever lived. Now he said a bunch of other stuff too, but that stuff didn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, Hey, he's smart. So I wanna I was interested in ancient I would even have been interested in ancient fictional wisdom. Like, give me fortune cookies, I'm happy. But so I bought a Bible. And I started reading it. And of course, then you you realize oh, well, this is this is they want us to believe these things actually happened, like these accounts that make it sound like you want me to believe that somebody saw this mm. and is recording this in a gospel. And so I began to test it both internally and externally. And I've written about the internal stuff in Cold Case Christianity, and that was, you know, and it it was never as clean as I might write it. You know, in other words, no investigation is as clean as you re- you rewrite it later because they're just so messy. You'll you'll have something that you're working, and you have a date, you have a timeline in your investigation. And then sure enough, someone will call and say, hey, uh, Joe's over here. He's back in town. You know, He says he saw something 30 years ago, and he's only going to be here for a couple of days. So now because of that time-sensitive witness, you're jumping off into this rabbit trail. And then, of course, that's going to create three more rabbit trails. And meanwhile, your timeline's all messed up. And that's kind of how it was for me.
2: Mm-hmm. I would
1: be investigating stuff inside the Gospels, which is in cold case. And then I would jump out and investigate all the stuff that's outside the Gospels. And that's really what we're talking about in this new book, Person of Interest, is this stuff. So it was kind of that combination of both the inside and the outside that eventually um, got me to a point where I was, I had deconstructed all the junk, all the thought, the, the, the kind of errant thinking I had mm-hmm. about the nature of the Gospels, about the nature of the claims, um, and I, I was able to now to kind of listen to what it was saying to me. Yeah.
0: Well, very good. Now, of course, you didn't just embrace Christ. You also went on to become one of today's most, I think, extremely popular Christian apologists. So how did you go from becoming a Christian um, to taking the next step to becoming the wildly popular apologist that you are?
1: Well, and I don't even I'll be honest with you, Chris. This is something that I've talked a lot about celebrity in the last year, I really, since Robbie Zacharias. And um, I'm not fond of it. I'm not fond of the fact that we we think that some people are popular right like how do we get more invisible that's the question Mm -hmm. and so i like last year i changed all my thumbnails on my youtube channel i'm just taking them all all the pictures of our faces we got to get those off there we got to figure out but of course when you write a book then the next thing you're doing is you're doing videos so (laughs) so how do you how do you avoid this right and so for me how it happened was i i was i was a detective and then i you know i got saved and Mm -hmm. Then I decided I wanted to learn more. So within about three years I was in seminary and it took me seven years to get you know my degree in seminary. and then I, I started youth pastoring because my kids were getting older and I wanted to be in their ministry. So as they got older, I, I was a youth ministry and a children's ministry. and then I did junior high and then I did high school. And uh, during that high school, those high school years, um, I started to really teach apologetics deeply to my mm-hmm. students. And um, I was on a trip with um, uh, Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell's son, and um, we were taking his high school class to Berkeley to encounter uh, atheism, and it was, his, I think, his first trip. So he asked me to come. I, had a, I brought one of my kids, and we go to Berkeley, and I'm teaching the stuff that I've been teaching in youth group for years, but I'm teaching it to his students. And he looked at me, and he says, you know, why don't you write a book about that? I'm like, 'cause I'm in, I'm I'm up to here in three cases that are in trial right now. There's no way I can do a book. I came home and Susie said, Well, if he's saying you should write a book, maybe you should at least like pencil something out. <laughs> so I penciled out the outline for cold case, and that's really how the book got written. It was a complete dumb you know, it was Providence, but it was it was not something that I was chasing. Uh he just said, Hey, if you and that ended up being, you know, the first book of of now, this is now I've done eight. But it's not like um you know, part of it is I just people will say, "Well, as an author, do you have an audience you're in mind? Like, is this kind of book you're trying to give Christians to buttress their faith, or is this kind of book you want it right for atheists?" I don't have anybody in mind. <laughs> like, I just want to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, I find this stuff out. And I'm like, "Wow, do you guys even know this about this?" The gospels does anybody even know i'm sure they always have known this but it was new to me <laughs> so i found myself wanting to talk about it and that's what these books i'm trying to do is to to show you what i learned and the, the weird way i approached it to get in um and you know a lot of it too is that i i missed chris the creative aspect of 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 um, the arts and and architecture that i was in for so many years that I didn't really have a way to express to kind of scratch that itch when I was in law enforcement until I got into jury trials and then I started creating presentations for closing arguments. And then this all kind of came back up. And so a lot of what I do with books is my opportunity to scratch that itch that otherwise I would never be able to, you know, that's why I do a lot of drawings in my books. Because I miss, you know, I'll, I'll go through. I, I spent three months drawing 400 illustrations for this book. Book, and now I got done with that. I was like, I'm done drawing for a while. I'm, I'm tapped out. <laughs> but I needed to do that because for like a year, I was like, I can't wait to do the drawings, you know, and and then once you're into it for three months, you're like, okay, I'm done now. But um, so a lot of that is just how I'm trying to use the gifts that you know God gives you. Basically, yeah. that's why the first book I always said. That I've never – can. you don't need another million-dollar apologist, and I'm not a million-dollar. I'm, I'm a one-dollar apologist. I take the whatever life God has given me, and I'm trying to leverage it, right? And so you're always going to get this view of the Gospels through this quirky kind of de- detective view, not because I'm, like, trying to um, – I, I guess you kind of know, Chris, that there's, like, no – uh, you're not going to get rich writing this nichey thing called Christian apologetics. I mean, if you think you are, you're in it for the wrong reason anyway. Yeah. So you have to figure out like, why am I doing this? And uh, this is not going to be a New York Times bestseller. This is not going to. This is not why you're doing this. You, it's it's because I'm trying to just use the exercise the gifts that you know that one dollar apologist thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, you know, speaking of gifts and speaking of your uh, presentations that you would create for your closing arguments in court, um, I f- I am often um, uh, commended for my uh, for my presentation skills. Um, mine don't come anywhere near as good as yours are, but if there is anything good in mine, it's because I've really striven to uh, to, to come even a fraction of of how far you have come in terms of creating compelling. Um, an informative PowerPoint presentations. Um, I remember <laughs> several years ago, I think it might have been in 2014 or something like that, I drove up I drove up to uh, Canada to an Apologetics Canada conference that you were giving a presentation on, and I remember you were, you were talking about how the variants in the manuscripts don't actually challenge the reliability of the New Testament, they actually support it. And you had this really cool animation where you were like, imagine you've got this text and then there's a slight error here and another one here and another one here and another one here, where well, you could put them all together and see what the original... Anyway, all I'm saying is I have consistently been blown away by your presentation skills. And so the question I want to uh, ask you here is, um, can you offer any advice to me and to other people that are in the business of putting PowerPoint presentations together to make them more compelling and, and more useful for what they're trying to accomplish with them?
1: Well, I can tell you, you're selling yourself. I mean, I've seen your, yeah, I love your stuff. And a lot of this is, it's it's individual, right? So, so we're going to each create something that, that really reflects who we are. So it'll always look a little bit different. But what I try to tell people is kind of abandon all of the template thinking that you're thinking of with, with PowerPoint. What you don't want to do is not, we're not using words and then trying to find images to support the words. And we all got a visual presentation like, you know, okay, I'm talking about truth. So I Google truth online, I find an image that has the word truth in it on someone's hand. So I copy that out and I put it on the PowerPoint. Now, what we're trying to do is to speak what I call visualish, right? We're not using words. We don't want to use the words. We want to speak in a way that is so visual that, that if I was to give the PowerPoint to you, you'd be going, what's this presentation even about? Like I don't have enough words on the screen to even know what the presentation is about. That's what we're looking for. We're looking to do something so that at the end, someone's going to walk up to you and say, what are you using? And you're going to say, I'm using PowerPoint. That was PowerPoint? Yeah. Okay, now you've probably stretched the medium to the point where it's no – because you can – I do this class at Biola where I talk about death by PowerPoint. You know, like here's 20 things that you just got to stop doing if you're using PowerPoint because they just, it just gives it away as PowerPoint. And, and we, we, we want to hide the fact that it's PowerPoint. We want people to not really even know what it is. Is that pro presenter? Like what is this, right? We <laughs> want them to think that this is something extravagant when in fact all it is is PowerPoint. And we do that by instead of using words that we then find images to support, we start thinking about, well, how could I say this, express this visually without using any words at all? And then, then you start building around that. So like when I did Person of Interest, I asked Zahnervin, the publisher, would you give me two years to build all of the stage presentations for this book? So I don't want to write the book with words. I want to write the book with images. And then I'll come back when that's all done, and I'll write a book from the media presentations. <laughs> and they said, okay, <laughs> if you want. You know, In other words, they're not paying me anything at this point yet, so this is fine. So I went ahead and did that, and that's why you have so many illustrations in the book, because it's really hard. I, now, I don't, like I did the audio version of this book, and I think it still works, but but I think that the, the images certainly help. And so what mm-hmm. I'm really kind of doing is writing from one visual element to another, so it's more like a graphic novel than it is like um, like a regular book. And I made sure that, I, I said this to everyone I was dealing with, I, when we did the interior layout, I said, I don't want a single page. If there's a list, fine. But if there's not a list, I don't want a single page when you open it for there not to be a graphic element. So 250 pages, it's about 400 illustrations that, you know, some of these pages have two two illustrations each. And that's the idea. Just so open the page. You're, if there's not a list, you should see that there's an image somewhere. Um, now, there are some pages that just have lists. And I think that lists can be visual if you format them right. So that was the whole point of the book, right, is to find pages, just find, you know, a way to illustrate every idea. So... That's, that's remarkable. I didn't even think of that. As I'm flipping through it, it is really hard to find a page. That right. Isn't well, you should have a list, right? You yeah. should have a list if there's no illustration. And that's and I learned about that a little bit, Chris, from from doing kids' books. Because mm-hmm. the ratio of, of illustrations to uh, images to text in a kids' book, I think, should be about 50-50. Because especially if you have like an eight-year-old, right? You want to have a lot of images to move between, kind of like a comic book, kind of a deal. So when I did a person of interest, I said, let me just do a kids' book for adults. Let me do more of a graphic novel. And that's that's kind of what we're doing.
0: Well, it works, um, and and I just have one last question for you before we start talking about your book. Um, you know, you said a few minutes ago you used the phrase "one apologist," and I love that. That's one of the one of a few J. Warner Wallace's uh, Wallace isms that that I still remember to this day. And there's another one which is mixed martial apologist. Um, I remember years and years ago you described you, you offering as an analogy to different apologetic methodologies, yeah. uh, mix you know the, the different kinds of martial arts, and I have. Res- Existed for some time, uh, identifying closely with one apologetic methodology mm-hmm. over another because it seems to me that in the same way that you describe a mixed martial artist is is the the best when they are if proficient with a number of different martial yeah. arts and bring the right one to the to the to the battle. Um, in the same way, it seems to me that every apologetics encounter is going to call for something of a different approach, and yeah. it's better to be good with them all. So I mean, do you want to say anything? I kind of just said it all, but I mean, if, if there's more you want to say through this concept of a mixed Martial apologetics, I'd appreciate
1: it. Well, okay, so let's just look at it this way. Sometimes you've been in the same fight, right? Like you'll you'll be in round three, and suddenly you realize, I mean, I'm not boxing this guy very well because he can outbox me, so I got to make a change. And if you are gifted enough in ground fighting or in some other discipline, you can actually change in the middle of the fight to help you win that round. And so, what we're trying to do here is something I don't want to see as like a battle. Like, this is not a battle where I'm trying to beat the enemy, and the enemy is a guy who doesn't believe. But I do think this is an, an approach. What, what I think is really tough, and you tell me if I'm wrong on this, is that as a family, we sometimes have no patience for each other if we don't fight the same way in the ring.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, this is why I've watched your character over the last seven or eight years since we've met. And I'm always struck by the fact that you are in, you've always been incredibly kind. And in other words, that character matters. Um, there used to be a radio show here in Los Angeles called Character Counts, and it does count. Um, and and what it means is is that there's times when I see as a family that we will divide as a family over the manner in which look, you and I hold like a slightly <laughs> we well, not a slightly a big different view on on what happens to the soul when we die, right? right. Is, it, is it eternal conscious torment in hell? Is it is it annihilationism? And I when I can take a QA, and I think I told you years ago. I'm like a fifty-one forty-nine on this. I'm like right. I mean, I see the the case for your view, and I don't consider this to be an essential. And so, when people will ask me in the Q and A, well, how do you address this issue with hell? Well, I'm I'd like likely to come back with some responses I might do from an eternal conscious torment perspective. But I always mention there's a guy named Chris Date <laughs> who makes a really good case, and I think that you know I'm kind of like I hold this with an open hand. I think that I could be completely wrong about my view i'm trying to base it on what i think is the evidence from scripture but so are you and i've seen that case it's good (laughs) so i i kind of like straddle i might have a foot and a half on this side but i've got a half a foot over there so i and i just learned uh and by by the way one one of the things that you've allowed me you haven't um Ah, pushed me in one direction or the other by a, a lack of character. In other words, sometimes we can hold have bad character, and suddenly our view, which might even be evidentially the best view, forget it. I don't care if that's yeah. what it takes to. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, this happens a lot with people who are in the presuppositional versus evidential versus classical versus <laughs> cumulative case versus whatever strand of, of of apologetics you're 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 interested in. Um, and and by my saying that I, I am willing to kind of work in any one of these disciplines all i typically do is is anger everybody who's in every discipline right (laughs) like they'll say well if you are taking that approach at all you clearly don't understand why we believe this approach is the right approach to take and you're heretical on your approach to the okay so i mean it's tough so i don't in, in the end because i hold an open hand even in the way i might navigate Uh, any particular conversation even if I'm inside a a number of rounds I started one way I'm shifting now because this round is different Um, that that I think it's fair for us to take that approach and we have to love each other as a family uh, if we don't agree on the approach right because I've seen people effectively use both approaches and and for me as a guy who's an evidentialist because I'm I mean professionally this is how we make cases um, I, don't be surprised if I'm going to drag that methodology into everything I do.
2: Right. When my, when
1: my kids are asking me, when my kids are telling me something, I'm building a case in my head. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. is that true? Like, if that's true, what, what about this? What about that? You know, like I'm thinking evidentially about everything. So that's just kind of how I'm wired. Yeah. Well, I appreciate
0: you talking to that,
1: and we'll, we'll shift gears now
0: and start talking about your book okay. here, uh, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And I do want to dive into it here in a moment, but before we do that, you've you've already mentioned one or two of the other books that you've published, um, Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith, and this book called Live. Before we start talking about this book, I'm curious um, how you got the idea to publish it and, and how it's different from those other books. What ground does it cover that those other books don't?
1: Okay, I'm just going to give you the true story. Okay. Don't, don't. This is between you and me. Don't. Tell yeah, nobody else here. Okay. Hear. <laughs> so I, I, I got a call. From, well, I was talking to people at Zondervan, and they really wanted me to write um, something like Cold Case Christianity. And I said, Well, I've already written Cold Case Christianity. Now I have an idea, because I knew when I, they wanted something in the Jesus space, a Jesus book, before I could write something else. And and I, I have an idea where I want to go next. But I I needed to kind of go through this portal to get there um, because the publisher really wanted something about Jesus. And I said, well, you know, I've never really talked about the whole thing because I knew it was gonna be like two and a half years of work to get the citations and all the stuff I was gonna need to get. And I thought, oh, but we could do this. (laughs) And so I explained to them that when I did cold case, that's really an examination of what I would say is in the crime scene, in other words, You've got a, an account of what happened with Jesus of Nazareth that's inside the New Testament. We need to test whether or not the New Testament is reliable to see if we can even trust what it's saying to us about Jesus. But but while I was doing that, I was also interested in all the stuff that was outside the New Testament. And my investigation took so long back then, and I, don't, I think maybe Susie thought I was dragging my feet, but I wasn't. It was just that I wanted to do it all. And and I and I so I, I ended up developing the stuff that's in Cold Case faster because it's easier to research. It's not as broad. Mm-hmm. And it took me a lot longer to rabbit trail all that stuff that's outside the New Testament. So these two books together kind of give you an inside and an outside view of Jesus that I think are kind of like they're like partner books. Yeah. But, and that's really why this book came next. I actually am looking to write another book that makes the case for um for Christianity from a completely different uh, angle, but but this is one that they would really kind of were interested in first. And I'm really glad they were, because um, I had what I would say is a blogger's level of understanding about some of the issues that the last three years now have given me a chance to deep dive.
2: Yeah, and
1: without, without COVID, that even wouldn't have happened because I had a complete, uh, very busy uh, speaking schedule last year and it all got canceled so it was you know okay now I'm able to deep dive and I hired research assistants and we just dived into it and I knew that I was gonna have to do that in order to um, write a book that would have look I'm not an academic and I don't want to write academic books I, I, I really consider myself an evangelist more than an academic and more than an apologist I'd like to kind of but I get it you know so, but I want to be able to at least make, as I put it, when you do a criminal trial in front of a jury, you spend like 10 weeks uh, showing them all the evidence, right? And then you spend like three hours in a closing argument. Mm-hmm. Now, those those 10 weeks are important because you're going to build your closing argument from all that data. So you need to do that time, but but, but my closing argument is not going to take 10 weeks. I can't go through all <laughs> that again. It's going to take three and a half hours. So it's going to have to be summarized and it's going to be rhetorically powerful. So what I try to do in books is closing arguments, right? I'm mm-hmm. trying to to what can I say about this that's not gonna be boring because it's the last thing you're going to hear from me before you go into jury deliberations. So I just want it to be as powerful as I can make it. And so that's that's how person of interest kind of came about. It just retraces a bunch of stuff I did years ago that I just thought would be I knew it would be a lot of labor. And yeah. so I and but here it is. <laughs>
0: Well, I very much look forward to the book that you've just mentioned you're looking forward to writing that comes at it from an entirely different angle. So I'll be um, keeping a close eye on your ministry to see as that as that approaches. Now, um, you, you build, you begin person of interest with two concepts from the world, your world in law enforcement that that you, you build upon throughout the whole book. One of them is the concept of a no body homicide case. Mm-hmm. And the other is a simpler concept of a cold case. So unpack these two concepts for us and explain how they could be Consider to be relevant to investigating the claims of Christianity.
1: Okay, so if you're somebody who's like me, who says I don't really trust, and when I first opened the scripture, I even read through the, the Gospels at least once, without even caring about their historicity or whether they were true. I just thought this was ancient fiction. Great, uh, but is he that smart? Yeah, he's smart, but this, you know. Lots of fictional characters. Sherlock Holmes is smart, uh, so, so I mean, I just I was, that's fine. Uh, but, but I really was not interested in spending too much. Like, you'd have a hard time convincing me that your scripture is worth my time. The same way a Mormon would have a hard time, or a Muslim would have a hard. I just didn't care. So I, I, I really thought, okay, so, so if you don't, if you're not interested in the scriptures, how else could you get information about Jesus? And I also had a sense that if he's who he said he was, he he should have a bigger impact. Like, right, like. Now, again, I had been through the educational process here in Southern California. I never heard the impact that Jesus had on culture. That's not something that was probably ever taught to us. So I always assumed that, hey, this little nobody from you know the Far East, who cares? I mean, not the Far East, but the Middle East, who cares? I mean, I, I, I didn't see the impact that he had on me. Why does he matter to me? So so what I tried to do, with, and you have a nobody missing, what happens is this. is You have somebody who kills his, his wife, and then he claims that she ran off. And I was just started talking about this last week. Uh, I had a case, I had a case one time that was 30 years behind the murder. He claimed she ran off. I reopened the case 30 years later. In that 30 year period of time, he had so utterly convinced the family that she was a runaway, that they never once called our agency to report, hey, you know what, are you still working this case? Has anybody ever looked to see? No, they didn't ever ask. They believed that she had run off, because he was Mm -hmm. that persuasive. And so what you have is a nobody missing, it's it's a homicide but he's gotten rid of the body and he's moved three times and there's no one ever took pictures of the house because they didn't take the report as a murder they took the report as a missing persons so i have no evidence from a crime scene and i have no body well how do i determine what happened and how do i make a case to a jury what we tell them is hey there's a period of time before the crime and a period of time after the crime and if on that day something terrible happened like a bomb went off and and it was explosive but every bomb is preceded by a fuse And once the bomb's detonated, you have all this shrapnel all over the crime scene. So what we're going to do is we're going to trace the fuse and the fallout to determine if we have a felony. And that simple approach of fuse and fallout is what we use in every no body murder or no body missing persons case, where we're trying to demonstrate that something bad did happen. And I, I, del- I illustrate this in the book. I actually go through a case. I, I've changed all the names and I've changed a I couple of things. I was wondering why I couldn't
0: find these names No, we you were
1: talking about. <laughs> no. So, so like I was showing this to a DA, a friend of mine who's not a, not a believer. And um, so I was just trying to, and I, was, I was actually helping him with the closing argument for a case in Los Angeles. And I was saying, well, why didn't you take the fuse and fallout approach? And this is what we, uh, this was very effective. So I was showing it to him. And he's going, oh, that's that case. And oh, that's that case. Like he knew my cases and how I had mixed and matched them. But i have changed the name so that that uh, i don't you know look i got one of these guys coming out of parole here so i just don't need to be like getting into all the names and details so i've changed some of that but for the most part this is a couple, like three or four cases that i've put together that uh hopefully will illustrate how the fuse and fallout demonstrates what happened on the day of the murder well could you do the same thing with the, with the with the jesus if you didn't if you said i don't trust anything in the crime scene the gospels i don't trust that stuff and, I, and so I, here's the thought experiment from the get-go. This is the thought experiment: If every New Testament had been destroyed by some evil regime, so that they actually successfully destroyed every New Testament, would they be able to erase the truth about Jesus from the world? Would you be able to to recover the data about Jesus, or would it be entirely lost? Hmm. And and how and how much impact? did this guy have on culture and, and if he's who he said he was he said he was it seems to me we should have tremendous impact on the history of humanity and that his fingerprints should be all over everything and in fact that is the case but I just wanted to show it by the fuse leading up to the appearance of Jesus in the first century and the fallout afterwards and again what I'm not saying is that You could reconstruct Jesus without the New Testament because clearly I'm going to be uh, looking at people who had a New Testament in their hands and then repeated it, reiterated it, included it in their body of work, and then I can capture that data. So all of it's going to come back, of course, to the data in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. That's why the thought experiment is laid out first. If you destroyed the New Testament, how much impact did this guy have? And there's fingerprints all over everything because it seems to me that's decent Decent evidence. And let me just say one more thing about that. Like, how can you demonstrate the historicity and deity of Jesus this way? Well, if you think there's another fictional character in the history of fictional characters that could have or has had the impact that Jesus has on culture, on the things I describe in the book, right? Arts, music, literature, education, science, world, religions. Show me who that is. And if you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, people look, Luke Skywalker, people people are, they know a lot of details about Luke Skywalker. Okay, if a thousand years from now we've changed our calendar and he's changed the way (laughs) we do all those five things, give me a call. Otherwise, he's going to be forgotten as another fictional character. And if there's no other human person in the history of human persons who's ever had this kind of impact, Well, then isn't it reasonable to think, hey, well, maybe he's not a fictional character because there's no other fictional character. This doesn't even seem reasonable for fictional characters. And maybe he's not just a regular human being because there's no other human being that's had this kind of impact. See, in other words, I think you can begin to shape a case for both the historicity and deity of Jesus, even though I'm going to argue that, no, all of that data has to eventually come back to the Gospels. There's no doubt about that. Right? But I'm doing a case that I'm trying to show you that it's so his, his, his impact on the world is so crazy good and so crazy unexpected that you could take out the best piece of evidence you have. I do this in front of a jury all the time. If you take out everything the defense team wants you to take out, do it. You still know he's the killer. Put that stuff back in, it's done. So that's what we're doing here. If you take this stuff out, you've still got enough information. Put that stuff back in, you've got a killer case. No pun intended. Yeah, good. I didn't even catch that. Yeah. yeah,
0: I I love the the fuse and the fallout analogy. I think that's super helpful, and that's why I did the cold open to this show the way that I did, talking about how many skeptics and atheists insist there's no evidence, and it's like, well, sure, there's no body, there's no, um, uh, we don't have the original manuscripts of the New Testament and stuff. But 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 what the fuse and the fallout is a way to say, um, is, is there perhaps evidence of another sort? And and you know, I did a little bit of research before I started interviewing you, and if I if I read correctly what i read something like 86 percent of nobody cases that go to trial um reach conviction whereas actually a smaller percentage of cases where there is a body end up going you know being convicted. Yeah, you know, and so I,
1: I wonder if that's because we, we 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 feel like we have to really overdo it have to really try harder <laughs> right when you have no body and we take for granted sometimes that oh this is this is so obvious right I mean the body was found in his backyard he clearly he's gonna be the one convicted for this but and so maybe we don't uh, kind of connect all those dots as strongly as we do on no body cases you know my buddy John Lewin who's been been my, my best friend in this business for years and we did all our cases together he just did the Robert Durst case and Durst was a very famous uh, suspect here in Southern California he was just convicted and sentenced to life sentences he's you know he's an older guy so he's not gonna be getting out of jail anyway but but what was interesting is a nobody it all started with a nobody murder in new york and and so you end up like putting you know weeks and weeks and weeks of effort in front of a jury because you're you're cognizant of the fact that i don't have a body and i need to make sure that you two things number one you you know that she's dead not just missing and number two that he's the one who did it so it's a lot of work but it ends up being i think pretty compelling in the end
0: well, and I think the case that you present uh, this fuse in the fallout for the historicity and deity of Christ is also extremely compelling. So let's start talking about that. And and we'll focus on the fuse first. And in your book, you cover actually a number of different um, uh, fuses. You might call them individual strands of, of a fuse. Yes. And I really want viewers um, to want to buy your book. And so I'm not going to go through all of them, but I do want to talk about a few beginning with what you call the circulation fuse. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this because that was something Thing that I had never even heard of before um, some of the other ones I had some familiarity with but this concept of the circulation fuse unpack that for us and explain its um, significance here
1: yeah it's part of a larger case from culture right the advancement of empires that start to develop infrastructure that make it easier to for ideas to travel so if you would have um, if Jesus comes a few years earlier not a few but a few centuries earlier some of the roads that uh, tr- that Paul traveled um, would not have been available to Paul uh, to travel because that infrastructure is not yet in place as the Roman Empire uh, Had not yet entered what is called the Pax Romana 200 year period of peace And that period of peace is when the Roman Empire for the most part was so dominant that nobody was messing with it <laughs> So so they could they could actually uh, change their resources They were could start, stop spending money on the wars and stop spending and start spending money on infrastructure Now of course a lot of the times what they were doing was setting up the infrastructure for what they anticipate is the next war Okay, So a lot of times it was about spending money, for example, on roads and on on, on infrastructure systems like postal services. Not to say there weren't roads before the Roman Empire or that there weren't postal services. As a matter of fact, postal services go back pretty far and, and Persians, for example, had a very good road system and a very good postal service because they had good roads. But the problem, of course, is the boundaries of the Persian Empire were much, much, much smaller than the boundaries of the Roman Empire. So if you want the most advanced, if you want this idea to travel to Europe, to travel to Rome, to maybe make it to Spain, to make it south to Egypt, to make it to where it needs to go, you have to wait for the infrastructure and circulation. A lot of that is postal services. Do you now Not that. By the way, it, it's not that. Um, the, the Christians had access, necessarily, to postal services. But you'll see that a lot of the letters that we have from non-Christians early on, plenty of the younger, for example, writing to the Trajan, these are the kinds of letters that were part of government systems that used the postal service to transmit ideas.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: between the roads in place and the circulation systems in place, you develop this window of opportunity that if somebody arrives in the first century and an idea is born, a, a, a principle is posited, well, you now have a way to communicate this idea, even the life of somebody, by using the circulation and road systems that weren't there previously. And if you look at how these things build up to the first century, and I overlap them, I overlap that, that cultural fuse with the prophetic fuse with the spiritual fuse, you'll see in one of the chapters called The Fullness of Time, I just show you how the overlap gives you a small window of opportunity of about a hundred years, from about 29 BC to about 70 AD, just and I, it's a you know again you have to see it because it's so visual, right? It's in that timeline. I overlap all these things and I do what's called red zoning, uh, which you know that's why I reached out to Scott Hansen of the NFL Red Zone because he's a, he's a big time fan of apologetics. And uh, I wanted him to endorse the book because I knew I was going to use the expression "red zone" in the book, and I thought it was kind of funny. But, but what we're trying to do is to say: is there a fullness of time, a small window of opportunity in which all the circumstances of the expectations of ancient people group spiritually? who exist at the one time in the overlap where the most number of ancient mythologies are being worshiped simultaneously. And those mythologies have certain common expectations of the ancients that are entirely embodied by the person of Jesus. So that God meets the expectations of those who are created in his image, who then think about God and have expectations. And then the prophecies that lead up to this point, Uh, give you a narrow window in Daniel 9 and then you also have the the cultural fuse that gives you this Pax Romana and all this infrastructure being built and when you overlap then you realize man the only place where all three of those things are opening up at the exact same time is in that small 100 year window and who do you think arrives now look uh, it's so crazy when I first found it that I thought I gotta make sure I'm not working backwards like I'm not saying okay I need a Jesus window so I'm gonna make one. Right, right. And and that is, I'm telling you, that is not how I found it. Uh, it was this way. It was like, okay, so what is the fuse? What is this fullness of time? What what is happening in a, If I'm gonna work Jesus like a nobody body murder, what what's the fuse gonna be? And I'm just looking through the ideas of what the fuse could be. And I just okay, I landed on those three, overlap them, and you're in that 100 year uh, open window. It's weird it is uh,
0: very remarkable um, I will turn to the fallout in a second but um, you know you mentioned the spiritual fuse and how there were all these different world religions um, that, uh, that that uh, have features that Jesus fulfills um, and and what I really what really I found remarkable about your treatment of the spiritual fuse is that you take a very popular uh, hopefully waning in popularity but a popular objection to Christianity and you turn it on its head um, you know, we're, very, we're, we're accustomed as apologists to hearing people say, oh, Jesus is just a copycat myth of the mystery m- religions or whatever. And what I find really fascinating about your treatment of the spiritual fuse is that you actually take the similarities of Jesus to those other mystery religions, um, and, and you, t- you turn it on its head as evidence for the deity of Christ, um, despite the fact that there are some similarities. So can you speak to mm. a moment of why, why those similarities actually support the, the historicity and deity of Jesus rather than challenge it?
1: Well, okay, so you, you do see similarities, but they're very broad. So if I said to you, you know, all of these deities, they, they will um, uh, appear miraculously, um, often said to be the descendants or children of kings or royalty. Um, you know, uh, I can go on and on about these. I, I list 15 in the book. But if you get into the details, if you deep dive the details... I have seen, for example, and we even did a trip to Berkeley. That same trip, with no, maybe it was one before that with Sean, where we invited an atheist in, and he gave a, our kids a list of divine attributes that sounded just like Jesus, and then he claimed those, those were Mithras. Well, if you really look at that list, it's all garbage. I mean, to be honest, Mithras is not, it cannot be said to be as similar as he would have had us believe. Now, broadly you can find that, yeah, a lot of these mythologies have broad expectations. Okay, if I'm going to appear miraculously, it's not that everyone is born of a virgin. Some pop out, Mithras, for example, pops out of the side of a mountain, leaving a cave. He's not born in a cave of a virgin. He pops out of a mountain, leaving a hole in the mountain. It's kind of a stretch to say that he is somehow similar <laughs> to Jesus. But it is interesting that the ancients who are thinking about a supernatural god think that if that supernatural being enters into the natural world, he probably is going to do it in some weird, unexpected, supernatural way. Hmm. And this is very common in ancient mythologies. So I listed all fifteen of these attributes and I looked at them all. Now, could you have more? Sure, you could have eighteen, but you'll have less commonality. You'll have you'll see the less of them, or you could have less, and then you'll have you know. But then you're going to lack some of the the similarities. So so I landed on fifteen, and none of these mythologies have more than say six of these common characteristics, and have less than six i should say and none have more than say say ten and and there's just, just a different palette of similarities in that six to ten range of the 15 that are available and then it turns out that jesus shows up and he has all 15 he's the only deity in this entire list of deities that has all 15 attributes so the question becomes well what what's that why is that the case why would it be that god would meet? Well, because I think there's a relationship between expecteds and expectors. You know, the more the expected meets the expectations of the expector, the better the result. And, and you know this in your own life. You know, the more your expectations meet reality, the, the happier you probably are. The higher your unreasonable expectations, the sadder you probably are. And so I think this is what God does. Is, is As C.S. Lewis says, that these ancient myths are man-made myths from the minds of poets, given what they had access to. And the, the story of Jesus is God's myth. He's using the word myth not to say a lie, just a story about deity. And it's God's myth based in what we call real things. And so I think that's the difference, right? Is that so I, I, I've i never seen those similarities that have never caused, because you have to deep dive them. You have to say, well, you know, so there's somebody else. Who was born of a virgin in a manger attended by angels and attended by wise men who then preached for three years and was, you know, no, you're not going to find <laughs> those similarities. And by the way, if you really thought, I mean, just think about it for a second. So you're telling me that the the Jewish writers of the Gospels, like Matthew, is trying to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah by cobbling together an entirely un-Jewish pagan mythology base. Well, Okay. I mean, I'm not sure what you can say to some of that stuff. I mean, right. but I certainly, again, all of us look, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you collect an evidence set and you spend t- 10 weeks showing it to the jury, I've never had, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever had a defense team that says, well, oh, I've got some evidence you didn't collect. I've got something new I'm going to bring. No, they just take the exact same 100 pieces of evidence and try to convince the jury that there's a better inference for those 100 pieces of evidence that the de- that the prosecutor this is what's happening here we all see the same data we're just saying which is the better inference right for the same data I think the better inference is that 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 God actually by the way he does the exact same thing with the Jewish people the types of Jesus before he arrives if you look at the broad outline of the Moses story the Jonah story the Joseph story the David story you're gonna see that you can find pieces of Jesus in those stories right? So what is going on here? Well, God is meeting. Why would you be surprised that there would be this kind of repeating nature of the archetypes and of the mythologies, given that we are humans created in the image of a holy God who think the thoughts after him, who, imag- who long for him? Even today, the number of people globally who don't believe in a higher power is very small, now, what that higher power is, is going to change sometimes culture to culture. But to say that there are there's like this large body of people who reject, there's even studies I talk about in the book where it seems that we are born uh, with a natural inference toward the divine, that even some of these atheist scholars who are doing the work would say that you know atheism is not our default position, that some form of theism is our default position, and that we acquire our atheistic beliefs. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, why would you be surprised the ancients would be any different?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. Let's then turn from the fuse to the fallout, and um, throughout the course of your book, book you cover by my count five categories of fallout, beginning with what you call the dissemination fallout. So, um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the dissemination fallout, uh, and how it buttresses the fuses that you investigated in pointing to the authenticity of Jesus.
1: Right, so I'm going to go all the way, I'm looking for two things in the fallout. Number one, did he have a major impact in any of these areas? Like you know, was there an impact? So I, I would expect that, right? If he's the rock, when he hits that water, it seems to me that I should see a huge ripple. And then number two, are his fingerprints so obvious in this area of cultural impact that I can reconstruct the story or recall the story or recover the story or have enough information to make a decision? Uh, so so I look at the dissemination is all about literature. And then you can start early. You can start early. And I, I've kind of analogized this to the story of, of um, Elvis because Elvis <laughs> had a huge impact on cultural literature uh, in the first 40 years. It's been about 40 years since he died. And and if you look at um, the literature, uh, the first two, or two decades probably, there was maybe four to ten books a year were being written about Elvis. Even this year, you can find books written all the way uh, into this 21st century about Elvis the further they get away from the actual Elvis person the more salacious they tend to become (laughs) because people are dying and they can't really point out the lies so that's all fine but the point I'm trying to make is there's three categories of people writing books about Elvis there's Presley's and friends of Presley who knew Elvis and loved him and then there are uh, non-Presley's who loved Elvis they wrote about him and then you have non-Presley's who don't like Elvis and they'll say anything for a buck so that's what you have in that collection of books if you read through that you'll see well, the same thing happens to Jesus early on. You have Christians who love Jesus. Those are the Church Fathers. You have non-Christians who love Jesus. I consider the Gnostic Gospel authors to be non-Christians. Because if you defi- by definition of Christianity, as uh, let's put it this way, the Church Fathers certainly thought that those folks were non-Christians because they didn't believe the same things that Christians believed about Jesus. Yet they wrote about Jesus and adapted Jesus into their stories and into their systems. And then you have non-Christians that don't like Jesus, and those are your Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, Persians, Jews, who have written in the first, and I look at everything in the first three centuries, and I do that because if the argument is, well, yeah, but once uh, Christianity becomes a religion of the empire... Well, I think you can see that power might corrupt. Okay, great. We're going to look at that period of time when Jesus, when Christianity is just trying to get a foothold, just trying to survive because you have to go through levels of either persecution or tolerance based on the emperor, up or down. And, and then finally it becomes a religion. Of the, I'm looking at the Antonicene church fathers and all of their contemporaries. And I'm also looking at the Gnostic gospel authors. And so I'm doing this not to say, look, look when someone tells me a lie, um, but they they'll say I was in the bank to do a bank robbery Um, I was in the bank to do a deposit and I can see in the video that was a bank robbery occurred that same day he walks in he won't might lie to me but he has to give me certain truisms certain truths in order to construct his lie. Same thing happens with the uh, books about Elvis. They all presume the same basic narrative story about Elvis in pre- in, in Memphis and his recor- earlier recording career, but one might say yeah you know on, on September 27th 1962 we know he was staying at this hotel in Memphis. Well somebody else later on will say yeah and that's where he slept with that girl. <laughs> Well, that could be a lie, but what, what they're doing is they're taking the data point they know is true that other people have confirmed that you slept in Memphis on that night and they're adding the lie to it. And that can rabbit trail off to all kinds of other lies. But interestingly, if you just say, well, what do these all people all have in common? What do all these authors assume in common before they start telling their rabbit t- uh, trail uh, stories? Well, you can actually reconstruct the basic narrative of, of the early life of Elvis from what is common to all of their fables what is common Mm. to all of their um, twists and turns same thing can happen with the gnostic Gospels. that's all i'm suggesting is that you can get data from the gnostic gospels because they presume certain truisms about the gospels the canonical gospels before they jump off and they have their secret meetings between this disciple and jesus and they assume certain things if nothing else they assume that there's a jesus and there's some disciples with these names and so you can go on and start to build and reconstruct the story from the tall tales, the same way you can reconstruct the story of, of Elvis from the tall tales over the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I just try to do that in the book and show you, like, what's the data you can reconstruct. Now, look, a lot of research has been done. I'm trusting some stuff I got from David Geisler. uh, has got associates at Norm Geisler's son and who's done a bunch of research. And I just quote that research so you can get some data back from the church fathers. But even if you didn't want to use a church fathers, uh, there are more ancient voices in ancient manuscripts that are non-Christians than there are that are Christians. And you can get data from those as well. And I just make a list of everything you could know about Jesus. Now, the question is, can you really know that? <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm I'm not saying that that is, this is not based on the on Gospels. They are. Someone at some point had a Gospel from which they drew this information and built on it. So in the end, it's all traceable back to a gospel set of canonical gospels. But I'm uh, operating under the dystopian future uh, kind of thought experiment in which the gospels have been destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to show people that the impact that Jesus had on literature, and I had to go all the way into the 21st century with screenplays and, and you know uh, Christ figuring that's in fiction in this century to show that no historical figure has been written about to this kind of detail There's no other, for example, if you search the Library of Congress, no one's been written about more than, as a historical figure, more than Jesus of Nazareth. Same is true if you do a Google book search. I mean, this is a guy who is, why is he dominating the bookshelves? That's all I'm trying to show. Incredible, outsized, oversized impact, unlike any other human being and unlike any other fictional character. And from that impact, you can recover the Jesus story.
0: Yeah very good Um, three of the other categories of fallout that you cover that if we had more time I'd love to dig into um, you've got the imagination fallout where you talk about Christ's impact on the arts the exploration fallout where you talk about Christ's impact on the sciences and then the education fallout which is pretty self-explanatory but the one that really impressed me and and uh, and I had never considered before was what you call the exaltation fallout so um, explain to us uh, this this concept of the exaltation fallout and maybe give us an example of one or two non-Christian religions that incorporated Jesus into them, both those that existed prior to the time of Christ and those that began after.
1: I think most people would say, well, yeah, no, duh. Like, religions that start after Jesus probably make some room for Jesus, right? You'll see Jesus on the pages of Baha'i scripture. You'll see Jesus on the pages of Ahmadi Muslim scripture. You'll see Jesus on the pages of Muslim scripture. If, it's, if, it's, if the system is following uh, uh, Christianity in the timeline, so it's in the common era, after the first century, uh, you would expect that they're probably gonna hat tip Jesus in some way. But what's interesting is so many religions that precede Jesus, that had a much longer runway before Christianity began, also, once they enter into the common era, they begin to modify and accept or embrace or repeat stories about Jesus or see Jesus as somebody who's consonant with their system. Mm -hmm. You know, like is a wise uh, uh, teacher on the way to Buddhahood or is... So then Buddhism and Hinduism leaders have spoken not only favorably uh, favorably about Jesus, but they have kind of said, hey, he fits within our way of thinking about this form of religious belief. They have merged, modified, or mentioned Jesus in some way, and even religions that don't even exist anymore, like the uh, worship of Attis or Heracles or Mithras. These don't even exist anymore. But before they began to not to, to vanish from the globe, uh, they would modify, if nothing else, the practice of their meetings. The nature of the God itself becomes more like Jesus. Sometimes even small uh, expressions that are usually applied to Jesus now become applied to that God, even though those expressions were never applied uh, before the Common Era. They were always applied after Christianity took place. You see that people are mentioned. Now, what's interesting about that so, you know, for example, you all know this, everyone knows that how much uh, Muslims revere uh, Jesus as a prophet, even above the uh, the level of, of Muhammad. But even the idea that he will judge the living and the dead with God and in the, in the Allah in the future, in the future, there's many of the stories about Jesus and the details about Jesus, you know, born a virgin, those kinds of details are either repeated on the pages of scripture of these other systems or their leaders have venerated Jesus, and in venerating him, they will mention what they've read in the scriptures. So now you have a body of work, if you Google it, what does this religious leaders think of Jesus? You'd have to destroy more than just the New Testament to get rid of Jesus. You'd have to destroy all of those remnants of Jesus that are still found either on the lips of religious leaders or in the text of religious systems. So that's, that's my whole point. You could not just destroy the New Testament. You have to destroy the largest body of literature, you have to destroy the history of education and and all of the campuses of the top 50, 75 universities of the top 100 in the world today you have to destroy much of art and classical art and art all the way into uh, any warhol painted jesus you have to destroy a lot of that you have to destroy so much of science's history because the science fathers by and large are christ followers And so you'd have to destroy so much to get rid of the Jesus story. And that strikes me as the kind of impact I would expect from Jesus if he was who he said he was. Right. And that's kind of the case we're trying to make here. By the way, isn't it interesting that everyone hat-tips Jesus? Yes, Jesus is now on the way, the truth, and the life. And no one is going to the Father except through me. So he, everyone wants Jesus as part of their system. <laughs> Jesus doesn't want anybody else as part of the system. And a lot of these things, like Hinduism and Buddhism and Zoroaster and Indra, all these deities existed before Jesus. He knew, nope, 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 except through me. So that's, and again, when you have, like, I've had cases where I've had I had a case from 1979 where this woman was very popular, and I had uh, about eight guys who I thought at first were equal candidates in her murder. Uh, but at some point, one candidate emerges, he has unique skills, he can uniquely make the weapon used to kill her, he can he uniquely has an anger issue with her, He she uniquely treated him a certain way, he had a unique opportunity in his calendar to do the, do the crime. He fits things uniquely. So the other eight kind of now, or seven really, just kind of fall into like a level of, yeah, they're commonly not involved. (laughs) This one is unique. Hmm. Well, the same kind of thing happens with Jesus. You know, they all love Jesus. He stands away and says, no, I'm the one who won't take any of that. And number two, you all have a system in place in which you're encouraging your followers to do something. And I'm taking just the opposite view. They could do nothing. And that difference separates him. And that's typically what you see when you're working suspects. One guy's gonna emerge uniquely.
0: Yeah. Very good. Um one other feature about your book, and I didn't i didn't think of this until a little bit ago, so it wasn't in the notes I sent you beforehand, but one other feature of your book that I think is really cool is that all throughout the book, sort of peppered throughout it, you've got these sidebars where they're not necessarily an integral part of the um, narrative right. that you're telling, but which offer really helpful little gold nuggets of things that people would be interested in reading. Like on page nine, you've got, does character count as evidence? And on page five, uh, objection, there is no quote unquote real evidence for God or Jesus. They're just these little bits of helpful things all scattered throughout the the book. Do you wanna say a word or two about what other things besides the fuse and the fallout concept and everything you unpack, what other kinds of things that readers will get a taste of by going through your book?
1: Yeah, so what I'm doing in the book is three things, well maybe four. So what I'm trying to do is number one, uh, show you a case involving someone I call Tammy Hayes, um, who is murdered by her husband, and I got handed this case. I, did, I was really, I was bombed. I didn't want to do the case. Um, I wasn't convinced that that her husband, Stephen, was even responsible at this point. Uh, so I didn't really want to do the case, but we ended up taking it on and uh, solved it. And so we're going to do that over 10 chapters. I'll show you how that case uh, plays out. And I'll, then I'll turn the corner on each chapter and show you how the same approach can be taken with Jesus. So that's the second thing we're going to do. Third thing we're going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of my own personal journey. Not a lot, but a little bit so you have some of that so you know why I was doing it the way I was doing it. And the fourth thing is if, if these things we're talking about in examining the fuse and the fallout are true, then other things make sense mm-hmm. or are also true as a result of I just pushed over a number of dominoes. Let me show you what the fifth domino looks like. And so sometimes what we're saying, well, you know, if we're saying that this counts as evidence, Part of the problem you have is that even scholars, biblical scholars, will get hung up on what counts as evidence. Right? Like, no, it has to be manuscript evidence. That's all that's gonna matter. And it's gonna be manuscript evidence that's found in gospel manuscripts. Well, okay, so I'm just gonna tell you in criminal trials, everything counts as evidence. What's in the crime scene? That's gonna count as evidence. What should be in the crime scene, but it's missing that counts as evidence. What did he say? That's evidential. What could he have said but he failed to say or didn't say intentionally? That's going to be evidence. We're going to use that. We're going to point that out to a jury. The non-existence of certain features, right? Mm -hmm. What what behaviors did he display? What behaviors would you expect him to display but he didn't? So these are the kinds of everything counts. I mean, everything counts. The way the pen is moved on the desk, that counts, right? I'm looking at every little thing, and, and, and I'll by the way, I'll use every little thing. It's it's at the death by, death by a thousand paper cuts. <laughs> I'm going to do that in a, in a criminal trial. And so that's why you could say, well, yeah, but Jim, isn't the better evidence just to stay in the Gospels? Uh, yeah, but it turns out there's a really good case you can make from outside the Gospels, and why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. This is what cumulative cases do. Cumulative cases look at everything, because the first thing someone's going to say is, and I've heard it said before, well, if he's who he said he was, why don't I see any evidence over here? Because you weren't looking. I'm going to show you. It's over there. Right, and that's that's what we're trying to do with this book. It's, it's funny the death by a thousand paper cuts
0: thing you were describing, and all the different things that really do qualify as evidence. That's why I find myself rolling my eyes when I watch TV and, and TV and movies where trials are depicted, and somebody will object and say circumstantial or whatever. Well, yeah, tons of evidence is circumstantial, but that's part of the case. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right.
1: That, by the way, no one does that. Okay, no <laughs> yeah. one's raising their hands and saying objection. Circum indirect evidence. Well, okay, that's that's what circumstantial evidence is. Indirect evidence. No. That's not an objection, right? So so a lot of it is trying to help people see that this stuff does count. And so when someone in a skeptic says, well, you don't have any evidence for this, well, you I think you, you could fairly say you don't have the kind of evidence you'd like or you don't have the kind of evidence that would be powerful to you. But to say you don't have any evidence is not really true. And and I think the – so I, I put it this way in the book. Like a lot of my cases, they're all circumstantial. and A lot of these nobody cases, the juror afterwards, we will interview them. And almost all of them will say to a person, "Yeah, it would have been nice if I—I I, I really wished there was somebody who would have seen something on the day of the murder. There was something from the day of the murder." And I get it, but you made a decision, you rendered a verdict, even though you don't have that. Yeah, no, I was convinced that he did it, but I just wish—I—I w- I just wish, you know, it would be so much better if I had that. Well, we have that as Christians. So, so yeah, I'm making a case in this book for everything that's outside the Scripture, but it turns out we actually have the eyewitness testimony. And I'm just trying to show you how strong this case is if we didn't have it, and then I'm going to tell you what we do. Yeah. Now, now, in the very end, I'm going to say, look, this is why I've written about in Cold Case Christianity. I, I think people sometimes will look and say, well, Jim, why didn't you go into more detail about that evidence? Well, because it's in a book from a different publisher, <laughs> Okay. and I wasn't going to be able to retell that book in this book. The best I could do is say, yeah, that that evidence is really good, and it's out there, and I've written about it in Cold Case Christianity. That's all I can do. But the reality of it is that's what we do in front of jury trials all the time. It turns out we have a really good case even without that eyewitness testimony, but it turns out that we do have that eyewitness testimony, so it's even better. Yeah,
0: well, you've you've sort of answered the next question I was going to ask you, which was uh, well, maybe I'll pose it to you to see if there's anything more you want to say about it. Yeah. Um, you know, let's say that uh, I'm going to try to play the devil's advocate here for a moment and, and try to push back a little bit. Frankly, I think it's mm-hmm. tough to do. I think your case is pretty remarkably compelling. But if I were to try to push back a bit, I think um, what I would ask you is it. See, it might seem to some people as if toward the beginning of the book, um, and, and not just in the book, but in the promotional materials, the back cover, mm-hmm. all of that. Kind of stuff you're giving this impression uh intentionally or otherwise that uh that you're gonna show readers that they can believe in the historicity and deity of jesus based solely on things outside of the new testament but then by the end of the book it arguably um you you soften that a little bit and you say well actually what i'm doing is establishing the reliability the trustworthiness of the new testament um, so that readers will then be encouraged to read it and that might strike some people as something of like a bait-and-switch so how would you respond to that concern that some people might have about um, Mm -hmm. the the seeming shift in tone from
1: beginning to the end of the book well no I think that's okay so I think it's fair for people to say well I think that way you're saying it is overstated but I don't but when I say you can know what you need to know but when I say you can know uh, if you destroyed all the New Testament Gospels this is my first premise that you could know the truth about Jesus without them what i'm not suggesting is that everything i'm about to show you did not originate in those gospels of course it did
2: hmm.
1: it all originated in those gospels but by the time you get it in history it is now being repeated by somebody else often with quotations around it because they're quoting from the gospels okay or from Paul's letters now in a similar way if you were i know you chris you probably memorize a lot of good scripture and I hmm. know your heart. Mostly just you about the topic of hell, because I'm <laughs> discussing it yes, so no, often. But, but anyway, know, but, that, but, but the reason why I think you do that is because you see this as, as, an, as an as an evangelist. Hmm. Like when you and I have talked about this, you know that the position you take, I think, is incredibly rhetorically powerful when you're handling an objection about hell, right? And you think, I want to present the gospel to you, but this seems to be your barrier. Like, you can't get off the stick on this, so let me help you with another way of thinking about it that I can make a case for, evidentially. And here's what you're going to do. You're in a plane, and you're making this case, and you don't have your Bible with you. But you've memorized the case, and you've memorized the scripture. And let's say you'd also memorized the Romans Road. And you're able to kind of cite scripture to the person sitting next to you, is that person now able to make a decision about, it? is it possible to bring someone to Christ mm. by communicating to him the truth of the scriptures, even though, dang it, I don't have my Bible with me. Or you're in a foreign land, and I want to communicate the truth of this, but I don't have uh, the language that you can read it from. So here's what it, here's, here's the information. I'm going to give it to you. Can, is it possible that Philip could convert an Ethiopian Without a New Testament, that Peter could say something meaningful to Cornelius, without a New Testament, that Peter could even evangelize on Pentecost, when there isn't a New Testament that has data, he's going to have to transmit that data to you, and then eventually it's going to make it on the pages of the Scriptures. But right now, I'm going. So, so what if the per, I think it is possible for to be to actually come to faith, and to accept Jesus is who he said he. The first thing you're going to want to do is get a Bible. I get it, but <laughs> my point is. In that conversation, you, you could actually have enough information to make a decision. Otherwise, don't do any street evangelism at all. Hmm. Right? So so the question or don't even bother to talk about Jesus in the plane if you don't have your Bible with you. Right. Um, so Sorry ma'am. Is,
0: I can't discuss Jesus with you. I don't have my what? Bible. <laughs>
1: So, so and again, now in the end, do I think that all that information in your head—that's coming out of the Scriptures—is coming out of the New Testament? But you now are the are the 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 mechanism by which they're going to get that information. Well, what if the mechanism by which they're going to get the information is not someone they're sitting next to in the plane, or Philip, or Peter, but is instead the entire history of a certain aspect of culture that screams the information about Jesus from every nook and cranny? Yeah. Well, I think that, to me, what if I was studying a thousand years down the road, they have successfully destroyed every New Testament, they tried their best to eradicate Jesus from the planet, but they didn't think about the history of science. And then I'm reading the journals of the most important scientists in the history of science, and I discovered that they talked a lot and wrote a lot about Jesus. They quoted him. They wrote letters describing the gospel to their friends and family members and cousins. Could I go, you know what, this Jesus guy, I think he's, he's who, he, who the scientists thought he was. I want to put my faith in this Jesus guy. Would that be possible? That's all I'm asking. It's a thought experiment. So in the end, I think the data, I'm not saying that you could know everything that could be known or that you could know everything you'd like to know because jurors will get either one of those things. I'm saying you could know enough to know that Jesus is unlike any other fictional character and unlike any other living human being And that, I think, is a good reason to believe he's not a fictional character or a human being. Merely a human being. He might be. Yes, yes. (laughs) But I mean, he's not just a mere mortal. That's what I was just saying. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That he's more than that, that the divine nature of Jesus does make better sense of the kind of impact he had. Yeah. Now, look, you might look at this approach I'm taking and you say, that's just weak sauce, man. I don't. That, that's not as good as another approach. Okay. I get that. Um, you might say that this one particular piece of evidence isn't as good as this other piece of evidence, so do I just not use it in the case? I'm only going to use one piece? You'd be amazed, and I they say this all the time some jurors will say to you three days in you know when you showed me that thing i was done i didn't need the other four days i don't need that i just this was enough for me now i don't stop there because i don't know that everyone feels that way right so i keep on going because maybe juror number 12 is like oh, i'm so glad because that last thing you said that's what sealed the deal for me so people's level of where they think they are now making a reasonable inference is def- different from person to person to person but i think some people are going to read this book and they're going to see it like I see it, like, wow, I had no idea. Now, let me just say one last thing about this. Here's what I'm seeing, both on the presuppositional versus uh, evidential apologetics and our approaches to evangelism, how we can know something with any level of certainty. And not just that. I mean, look at end times, eschatology. How old is the earth? Uh, and What's the relationship between God's sovereignty and our free agency? Are we, Calvinism, Arminianism, we can go on and on, right? What we do typically is we are, we, we have to decide what is an essential here mm-hmm. and what is a non essential. So let me give you a little, a little so before we leave, let me give you one little uh, thought experiment a, as well, an analogy. Here's what I'm seeing. What I see is that uh, my, my grandfather's Warner. I, I call myself James Warner Wallace. He's, that's my middle name. But Warner was the patriarch, and we all loved Warner. We're all glad to be his descendants. We all in our family are happy to be Wallace's because of Warner. And, and I'll be honest with you, none of us doubts that anyone else is a is a Wallace. Like, none of us would say, well, you hold a heretical view of Warner, so you're not a Wallace. No, we, we all agree we're Wallaces. So it's only about the non-essential stuff that we have sometimes will fight. As a matter of fact, sometimes we'll fight because we'll think, how can you best know about Warner? Well, you need to, write a, to read his personal journals. Well, no, some people will say, no, you just need to talk to his, his, his children who knew him best. No, you need to talk to his co-workers, anyone actually, or the impact he had on his industry and his world. That was really cool. And some people will say, well, no, you've got to use all that stuff. You can use all of it to know something about Warner. Well, we fight so much about this and we're so toxic about it that we will like, start to like, like be rude to each other. And and we would never talk to our spouses the way we are now willing to talk. We would never talk to our blood siblings, but we do this. We start talking this way, and now the Wallaces are always fighting. As a matter of fact, now what we're doing, the Wallaces are going outside, sometimes going back home, and they're getting on social media and they're calling each other out by name, and they're saying, you know, my brother Mike. You know what he said yesterday? Quote: He said this. Do you believe he would say that? That is the most ridiculous thing. There's no way that could be. Blah, blah 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 blah. And now people are listening to our fights with our own siblings. Okay. Now, meanwhile, the window's been open on our house, and I got a next-door neighbor who's been listening to this whole thing. And occasionally she hops on social media, and she's like, whoa, they're even like on social media beating each other up. And she's like, you know, I don't know anything about that whole Wallace thing, but I'm just glad I'm not a Wallace. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also young children in the Wallace family who are going, you know, the world around me, they do all kinds of crazy, and I try it. And I've been restraining myself to, like, I call myself a Wallace, but, you know, these Wallace people are so toxic, <laughs> I'm just going to jump out and have some fun for a while. And there's other people who will say, well, no, I don't want to have that. That's ridiculous. I believe in what Warner Wallace stood for. But I will agree with you. We don't seem to embody it. And there are people who aren't Wallaces who seem to embody the Warner Wallace worldview better than the Wallaces do. So I think I might just step out for a season and just kind of not be involved in all this nonsense. And then you got people who will say, well, you know what, to be honest, um, uh, there are some Wallaces that aren't so bad. So I'm just going to ignore the Wallaces I don't like and hang out with the Wallaces I do and just pretend like all the other Wallaces are dead. Okay. Now there's a fourth option. This is what I'm seeing happening in the church. The fourth option is we stay in the house together and we learn how to agreeably disagree. Amen. And how to love each other and we shut the window. And we keep that stuff. Now, if it's if it's a matter of hey, I'm now denying the, all the truth about about Warner, I get it. But if it's about how do we know what, that this is this is a this is strikes me as odd that we would ever challenge each other on the basis of well what could be said about Warner if if we're all trying to and well my my approach is much stronger than yours okay great write a book this is going to be awesome I'll support you write the book I'll put it on my social media I'll support you I'll I'll back it up for you but but I mean are we really going to say that there's some aspect of this we shouldn't do so I, I my fear is that 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 and as a guy who for 35 years was listening through that open window. I, I'm discouraged. And I think that social media has not made us more social. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so one last one last true. thing. You know what I love about LinkedIn? Hmm. LinkedIn, when you are in someone's orbit, you are called a connection. Hmm. And in order to be in that guy's orbit or that gal's orbit, you hit a button that says connect. And that means if I have 20,000 people connected to me, I am also connected to the same 20,000 people in reverse. Yep. But on all the other social media platforms, The button is called follow. And so we develop followers. Mm. And now we're back to where we started when we first started, you and I. The issue for me is how do we get invisible? Because I don't want the celebrity thing anymore. Mm. I write books. I'm not that big on YouTube. I put stuff on YouTube, but that's not my biggest foot forward i'd write books i would love to be able to write books and i wish there was no social media like the old days like do you know what john grisham looks like i don't i don't but grisham's written a bunch of really great books and movies and had all kinds of impact he's probably a millionaire but no one knows what he looks like oh man that must be awesome because it's not about grisham the celebrity thing isn't his goal the celeb the, the, the 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 book stuff is the creative side is his goal and so how do we do this in such a way that Jesus becomes the thing that people see instead of us? And that's, I think, the challenge we're all facing going forward.
0: I wish I knew the answer, but I don't yet.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't either. And, I, and here we are putting a book season of, of book promotions, and I will tell you that it feels like I'm violating every principle that I would like to embody. Because, you know, anyone can write a book. That's not the hard part. Getting someone to read the book, that's the hard part. And very few people write books they want no one to read. Yeah. So so it's just really, you know, if this is true about Jesus, I want people to see it. I don't even think that people have been have been educated to know the kind of impact that Jesus has had on culture. We just take it for granted now. And I certainly didn't learn it in school.
0: Yeah. So well, for whatever it's worth, it seems to me that, yes, it is possible to become a celebrity in an unhealthy way, um, and, and for the focus to become less on Jesus and more on the celebrity. I think there is a real danger there. But at the same time, it seems to me that um, if, if, if Philip is, uh, I mean, look, the, Ethi- the Ethiopian eunuch did not see Jesus. He saw Philip. And yes, Philip was pointing him to Jesus, just like you are the people that are watching you. So hopefully, you know, I would hope if I were in your shoes, try to take a little bit of encouragement in that, that even to what little extent you might have to be a celebrity at this stage in your life, I think it is still an opportunity to lead Ethiopian eunuchs to Christ, as it were, even though they're seeing you physically and not Jesus, because you're, you're, you're modeling what it is to be a Jesus follower to them. And so there is a sense in which they see Jesus in you. So you know, take, take or leave that <laughs> for it's well let
1: this be just a, a little mutual love festival so, so chris <laughs> you and i have known each other for a while it's and there have been times when we have not agreed on theological no. issues and at every turn at every turn you have shown christ to me well i appreciate that and i thought so. that's that's wild right like i know these things are important to you i know that the issues you hold you've researched like you're saying well you've got all this me- scripture memorized about hell i know you do this stuff matters to you. And you could easily have been upset that if I don't agree with a certain position. I've never seen you, not just this way, but I mean, even like in, in you know, a, a TV uh, appearances on radio, appearances on video, I've never seen you take a hostile approach. So what I think we have to do is somehow kind of figure out how to model that. Yeah. Going forward, right? So anyway.
0: Very well said. Well, I don't want to take up much of your time. Let, let, let's start to wrap things up. And in the same way that I did with you at the beginning of the show, something I do with the vast majority of my interview guests, I'm going to do the same thing now at the tail end and ask you to offer something of a parting message you know we've been rambling for about an hour and 20 minutes now and some of our audience will have forgotten most of what we've talked about when this is over so if there's one thing you could leave them with that they'll be that will sit and eat at their mind a little bit and they'll be thinking about even after the stream is over what would that be?
1: Well, okay, so a lot of us, and I know you talked about this with me earlier, and I'm I, this is hard for me, but so, it's, you know, what's the one, do I really, have, am I the person that could really say anything that profound? Probably not, but but I will say that that I love how God uses each of us in our unusual gifts, mm. where you probably 10 years ago would not have thought that you're going to be doing a YouTube channel right now <laughs> you know. and doing everything you've done with, with uh, your website. I mean, you probably never would have guessed that. And, and that's true for all of us. So here's what I would encourage you to do. We have all of us who are um, consuming content. So if you're listening to this right now, you're probably a content consumer. How do we shift to be content creators? Because if we we say that we want to help make disciples of others. It's going to have to start with us discipling others. And that means we got to shift at some point from consuming content. You probably already know enough in some limited range to be able to help somebody by creating that content. And so I just want to help people to realize that $1 apologist thing I always talk about, that is very, very true still today. We need more people to create. The voice, this is a noisy world. <laughs> and at some point, I think we can be shouted down. We're afraid to say anything. We're afraid we're going to be canceled. We're afraid we're going to have, a, well, this is what Jesus told us it was going to happen. He says, you will be, you know, when people uh, persecute you and insult you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. It's not an if, it's a when. So there's times when I feel like, hey, if you're not getting somebody beating you with a stick, you probably aren't doing anything. (laughs) So it's about us now trying to get up and say something, get up and do something, and use the life that God has given you to do it. I mean, I have this weird background that you don't ever think you'd see as a Christian apologist, but here it is. Uh, The same is true for you. You think you don't have any way to make an impact? You're wrong. You can make the same impact. You just got to start talking about Jesus. So I want to encourage people to shift from content, content consumption to content creation
0: yeah uh, for whatever it's worth yeah it, it, it was it, my background is software and I would have never have thought how being a software engineer would help me in debates and in uh, evangelism and things like that but software has a unique s- set of skills that are needed to succeed in that in the same way that law mm-hmm. enforcement does and and for those of you watching the same is true in whatever industry you are specializing in as well so I, I totally love the way that you said that Jim um, now if viewers want to find you and your ministry online including the other books that you published I'll, I'll ask you let's last question in a moment about person of interest but your other books your ministry how, how could people find that stuff online where would they go
1: you yeah, just go to coldcasechristianity.com we didn't change that you know I mean we have all the other URLs but like j but I just don't want to use those and so everything really points back to coldcasechristianity.com and for the new book uh, we have got it you've got some banners on on the website that'll point you also but it's just person of interest book because there's a person of interest movie, there's a person of interest TV series. Uh, this is a common phrase that's used now, uh, but but person of interest book uh, Dot-com we're the only one in that space right now.
0: Well, very good uh, That's what I was gonna ask you next was how to get your, their hands on a copy of this. Um, I really mm-hmm. loved it um, the, the, just 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 the story as you unpack it of the the Steve and Tammy Hayes uh, case That alone was worth the read and had me enraptured So I really oh, uh, loved it and, and appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it. Thanks for your time I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks Chris. I appreciate you being a brother
0: All right um, Alright, I'm going to switch back now to just me and uh, say goodbye to viewers. So, thank you everybody for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed the interview as much as I did conducting it. Um, In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, I'll be on the show with my wife to talk about healthy and happy marriages. Um, And if you enjoyed what you watched today, remember, like that, uh, like the video, subscribe, and click the notifications bell. Um, And most importantly, um, do go get a copy of Person of Interest. Um, It's available on Amazon, um, and I... Wouldn't be surprised if at some point it was available on Logos or Faith Life or something. But anyway, you'll be able to find it, and uh, highly encourage you to check it out. So uh, with that having been said, I'll bid you all adieu. Come back two weeks, um, Monday, November 1st at 6 p.m. Pacific, the usual time, and I'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, Why we believe it and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then,